Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. This episode, we host Elizabeth Hoover, professor of American studies at Brown University. Also gardener, bead worker, and fancy shawl dancer, Elizabeth's traveled the country to document and learn more about indigenous food movements across the U.S. This work has led to two books. She co-edited Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States, Restoring Cultural Knowledge, Protecting Environments, and Regaining Health. And her book, From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, Indigenizing the Local Food Movement, is forthcoming. Elizabeth's work weaves together native foodways with themes of food sovereignty and environmental health. Her travels then reveal both hyperlocal and united stories of people's courage and resilience. Take a listen to Elizabeth's chat with podcast manager Amy Jean. Welcome, Elizabeth, to Chewing the Fat. We're really excited that you're here. As a kid, you wanted to be a farmer. How has your upbringing at an upstate New York farm shaped the work you do today with indigenous food movements? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I wanted to be a farmer when I grew up because I wanted to be outside all the time. I grew up on a little hobby farm, I guess you would call it. We had goats and pigs and chickens and ducks and lots of vegetables, and we got a lot of our food from that garden. And so that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a farmer when I grew up. And then we got a new guidance counselor at our little school out in the middle of nowhere. She had worked off the hill with wealthier schools, getting kids ready for college. And so when she joined the staff at Burn Knox Westerlo, she looked at my plans and said, well, farming is really not a thriving business right now. This was in the earlier in the 90s before before the hipsters made farming a, a profitable <laughs> thing to do. Um, so she didn't think that was going to be a good plan. And she suggested that I go to Williams College out in Massachusetts. And then she helped me with all the paperwork and the financial aid forms and the applications. And when I got into the school, I came to her and said, oh, my God, I have to pick out a schedule now. And she said, I think you should do anthropology. Um, I said, okay. <laughs> and so then a few years ago, I wrote to Mrs. Munson and said, hey, instead of a failing farmer, I just finished a PhD in anthropology and I got a job at an Ivy League school. So she was pretty excited about that. But even though I didn't get to make a profession out of farming, which I only regret sometimes Mm -hmm. because it still would be nice to be outside all the time, I still wanted to spend as much time as I could thinking about food and working with food and still getting dirt under my fingernails. And so in thinking about the first book that I wrote was called The River is in Us, Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community, which is about Akwazesne in upstate New York a community that's downstream from some super fun sites. And as part of doing interviews there and talking to people about how environmental health research had shaped their perceptions of their community and their health and their food, I was volunteering with a group called Ganahio Yungaya Dohage, or We Are Planting Good Seeds, applying what I had learned growing up on this little farm to volunteering and helping people in gardens and butchering chickens and all of those things. And so I was happy that I was still able to kind of apply the things that I had learned around food growing up. And as part of working with that group, you know, we would be sitting around at night going, wow, I wonder how other community organizations are dealing with some of the challenges that we were looking at. So everything from how are people getting funding, how are people getting youth involved, how are people getting more community members involved and finding ways to market their produce and all of those things. 
And so those kind of questions really led me to start attending some of these different indigenous intertribal food summits and meeting people from all over the country who were coming together to, to share about the projects they were involved in. And that was like, oh, that was really great. Now I want to go see these projects in person. So after getting the job at Brown, I got some funding and took to the road with my friend Angelo, who's a filmmaker, and we drove 20,000 miles around the country over about four months and popped into 40 different Native communities to talk to them about how are you defining food sovereignty? How are you Mm. funding these projects? How are you defining what is an heirloom seed? All of these kind of questions. What is your advice for other organizations trying to get into this kind of work? And so that's what has led me to this bigger, broader project that I'm working on for the the book that I'm writing right now. Yeah, that's really cool. So you are a professor at a university, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting that you don't stay inside the university all the time. (laughs) Like you talk about these road trips. You've journeyed a number of times across the country searching for food sovereignty projects, Mm -hmm. how different people define food sovereignty in their own way. So you've interviewed indigenous farmers, activists, gardeners, and seed keepers, Mm -hmm. a diverse range of people. What has stood out to you as you talk to all these different people? Oh, it's been so much fun. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, being on the road is the easy part. The hard part is coming back and having to sit at a desk afterwards. (laughs) Um, But there's a real, there's so many people right now who are working so hard to try to make good food accessible to their communities, and that's in rural places, in urban places, you know, on reservations that are kind of half urban, half rural. People are working really hard to especially involve the youth. There was a lot of descriptions of, you know, wanting to make sure that youth health statistics improved. There's a recognition that dramatic change in people's diets has led to a lot of health problems. And so wanting to connect with youth and get them excited about traditional food and healthy food as a way of reversing some of those really painful health statistics. Um, So there's been a real focus on health, on youth, on reviving heirloom seed varieties, um, so making sure that people have access to the types of seeds that their ancestors have planted over many years has been a big focus of these projects. So it's been exciting to see since I first started going to food summits probably about six or seven years ago to see the, the way that the movement has grown, that there have been some more and more projects of, of people getting excited, more and more people wanting to be part of these kind of projects. So that's been exciting. You mentioned seeds and how they're important to different Native communities. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about what the significance of the seed is? So my project specifically focused on Native communities that are farming and gardening as a way of bringing back food sovereignty. So there are other communities that are looking into, you know, fishing and hunting and gathering, um, which are also really important. But I was excited about, you know, planting because that was what I was familiar with. And when I was growing up, you know, we just bought our seeds from a catalog or from the agriculture store, like so many people do when they're doing gardening. And so it's been really um, fascinating to get to know all of these seed varieties and to see organizations like the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network that's helping communities to seek out those varieties that many people stopped growing, but the few people might still have access to. And so the term seed rematriation is something that people have started using, you know, seed keepers like Rowan White, who directs the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, as a way of highlighting the importance of women in seed keeping movements and the importance of all those generations of grandmas that have 
uh, revived these seeds, who have held on to these seeds, who have passed mm-hmm. these seeds down, that have selected each year so that like this big fat bean that I'm holding right here, you know, somebody decided that they really liked the purple color and the black flecks and the big fat size of it and said, okay, we're going to plant more and more of ones like that. And every time we plant one of these beans and eat one of these beans, that connects you to all those people that made those important decisions about which ones to keep. So when we think about repatriation is a term that's often used around like the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act or the repatriation of prisoners of war. So you're sending something that was taken away from the community and you're, you're sending it back. So in the case of objects through NAGPRA, you know, things that museums have that are objects of cultural patrimony or grave goods or ancestors, and you're returning those things back. It's kind of this one-way arrow. But the way we think about rematriation is in more of a circle. So you're connecting those seeds, sometimes which have left the communities and they're they're sitting in seed banks or they're sitting in museums or they're sitting in a context that's outside of the community. And you're bringing those seeds back to the community. You're reconnecting them with the people in the community. But you're also reconnecting those seeds with the land that they are meant to be in, that they were developed in. And in that process, you're reconnecting people with the land. And so it's this circle kind of connecting seeds and people and land all together. Um, and so it's it's more circular than kind of this one-way path of just sending something home, and that's the end of the story. So you're really interested in planting, and you talk about this circular relationship that Indigenous people have with the land, with seeds, through the act of planting and mm-hmm. gardening. So can you tell us more about the idea of gardening as a source of connection to relatives? Absolutely. I mean, the knowledge around when to plant and um, which seeds to save and when to harvest them and how to cook them. I mean, these are all things that you can't just know. You have to um, learn those from other people. And so the process of connecting with community, with family, you know, gardening was not something that was done as a solo in Denver in native communities. And so back back a long time ago, back in the day when people lived in villages and had huge gardens around those villages, you know, people were working collaboratively in those spaces. Men were working together to clear land and women were working together to, you know, plant those seeds and take care of those crops. And it was a collective endeavor. And so now what a lot of these different organizations that are trying to bring back traditional farming and gardening and heirloom seeds Part of what's so valuable is the social connections that are made as part of taking part in those organizations. So the the traditional language that's being taught as part of that. In thinking about when you harvest these beans, these corns, what are you going to make out of them? And so the interactions that happen around not just the planting and tending to the crops and then harvesting the crops, but then um, the exchanges of recipes and then eating that food all together in the way that that brings people together. I was very surprised to learn that the ethnic group in America with the highest rates of diabetes are Native peoples. Mm-hmm. So I guess how does advocacy for both physical health and environmental health intersect in Native communities? So in connecting the health of the land and health of people, there's a term eco-cultural health, so kind of reflecting on how the health of the land and health of people are inextricably linked, that when the land is not healthy, the people are not healthy. And if the people are not healthy and they're not interacting with the land, 
in the same way, then the land is not going to be as healthy. So different conservation organizations have this notion of wilderness as something like, oh, we're going to take a step back and we're going to let the land get to the place that it was before people interacted with it. When was this magical time? Like there have always been people here in this country, on this land, on this turtle island, shaping the land in order to help provide food. And so I was just out in California for the past year and meeting with the Amamutsun band that has the Amamutsun Land Trust. So they're trying to take this landscape and bring it back to what it looked like when Amamutsun people were there using fire on the land and shaping the land. And this is how they, it was so prolific in all these grass seeds that provide a lot of nutrition for them. And it was the right uh, setting for deer and elk, you know, other animals that were coming through. And they've had some resistance from traditional conservation organizations. They're like, no, you can't go in there and cut down trees. We can't condone the cutting down of trees. And they're like, well, nobody eats spruce trees, though. <laughs> like, those, you know, that only happened because people took a step back from the land and didn't touch it. And so there's this sense of, you know, reconnecting with that land and making sure that land is healthy in the context of healthy and that it has this healthy interaction with people. And there have been youth involved in that project as part of the land stewards. So as you mentioned, there's the statistic of people having the highest rates of diabetes of any other ethnic group. And that's not a mistake. You know, the U.S. government has targeted the food systems of Native people from the time of earliest colonization onward. So President Washington sent General Sullivan out to lay waste to their settlement, to Haudenosaunee people, to punish them for not siding with the Americans. And so Sullivan and his troop intentionally burned all these cornfields, all these storehouses. You know, they described millions of bushels of corn that they burned on purpose to deprive Haudenosaunee people of a food source. And the same for all the, the buffalo that were targeted for eradication on the plains or for Navajo people who didn't go on the long walk Kit Carson and his men went around and burned up all their orchards and their, their herds, their sheep herds, in order to, to starve them. And then once you've starved people, you have to, if you don't want them to all die, and it was like, oh, this is a bad look, you have to provide them with some kind of food, with food rations were written into treaties. And those foods were rotten meat a lot of time, but flour and oil, mm -hmm. processed food. And so this is when people were introduced to these processed foods and had to eat them as a way of not starving to death. Starting in the 30s, you had commodity foods that were distributed to communities. So cheeses and you know flour and oil, canned meats have been added to that. A lot of high sugar, high salt, processed food. And so it's not an accident that Native communities have the highest rates of diabetes. It's having their food systems intentionally destroyed and then commodity foods distributed and now people who are of low economic status, the food that they can afford is, you know, these kinds of packaged processed foods. And so this is a big part of what these different nonprofit grassroots organizations are working on is, okay, how recognizing the type of food that most people have had access to for most of their life, how do you make it more accessible for people to be eating these traditional foods? How do you get them into people's houses? How do you and get people excited about wanting to, to cook them. And so some organizations have partnered with chefs. I know uh, the Sioux Chef the team there, Sean, Sean Sermon, has been part of this podcast. He works with Dream of Wild Health, which is this great organization in Minnesota 
that has kids from St. Paul and Minneapolis that come up to the farm, the Dream Wild Health Farm in Hugo for the summer, and they learn how to plant the, the crops, and they learn how to tend them, and then they cook them for their meals in the, the kitchen, and they take them to the farmer's market, so they learn about kind of the, the economic end of things. And then there are also classes provided to the parents. And so that's a way of you know getting people of multiple generations excited about the idea of working with these foods. And then there are elders who are invited to come and work with the youth as well, because while the youth are held up as a really important aspect of these projects, so are the, the elders that have this kind of information and the stories that are helpful for those youth to know as part of getting excited about these foods. Given that the food systems of many Native communities were historically targeted by the American government with these injections of mainstream commercial processed foods, how do these communities recover and make more robust their traditional food systems today? So part of was destroyed, but there have always been people who have also held on to things. So General Sullivan's men set fire to those fields and burnt up as much corn as they could, and people still had access to some. It was always still okay. a little bit. Other communities okay. have some. So part of it, you know, the rebuilding these food systems is community sharing with each other. Um, some people having a good collection of seeds, and other people have lost their seeds. Sometimes it takes turning to neighboring tribes and getting back seeds. Sometimes tribes have turned to museums and said, hey, you have some of our seeds. The example, the, the Pawnee, some of the seeds that they brought back into existence came out of a, a bundle that was returned to them from a historical society. There have been other seed keepers who squirreled away seeds, and then people have been like, oh, hey, that's the corn that we've been looking for. So it's been a lot of networking. It's been a lot of people working together and then growing out as much of these seeds as possible. Mm. Would you say in this food sovereignty movement, there have been a growing sense of solidarity between people from different tribes? Yeah, I mean, I think organizations like the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, like the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, um, that try to work with all kinds of different communities around the country. When you go to these different food sovereignty summits, there are people from all kinds of different tribes that come together and share advice around, like, where are you going to for funding? Or, you know, what is the kind of volunteer structure that you have set up to get people to work in your gardens. And so I think that's where this movement has really been growing and moving in, in interesting and exciting ways is the ways that people are working together to try to share what works for them or what didn't work for them as a way of propelling other projects forward. So you are a board member of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about your experiences in that role? Yeah, so I serve as the secretary for the organization So because I do a lot of typing as an academic, mm -hmm. so I, I type up lots of notes. I go to all of the different summits that NAFSA helps to co-sponsor and take as many photos as possible and, and try to help document those events and record some of the different sessions. So yeah, it's been a lot of doing outreach to try to figure out what is it that communities really need to help move forward a lot of their different food sovereignty projects and thinking about how we as an organization that's constantly kind of growing and shaping and figuring out how to reassess can support those projects. Do you think there is a national narrative about indigenous food sovereignty? 
If so, how should we reconcile that with grassroots narratives reflecting local tribal efforts without reducing nuance? Yeah, so for the book that I'm working on right now, I wrote a chapter that came out of an article that was in the American Indian Cultural Research Journal looking at how these different projects are defining food sovereignty. So a term like that that's sort of blanketly applied all around. Um, And there are differences here and there. The helpful part of the broader movement is sort of in supporting grassroots organizations who have similar experiences and being able to learn from those experiences. But it's going to be different depending on the politics of your region, depending on the particular food crop that you're working with, depending on your your weather, depending on the economy in your area, um, depending on how elections go, whether that's tribal elections or nationwide elections or state elections. These things can all impact how successful a project may be in the present. So I don't know that there's a a fear right now of a kind of glossing over and everybody being assumed to be the same um, because there are all of these nuances in different regions and in different areas. But I think it's been helpful for individual projects to be able to look to others and just to know that they're part of a broader movement so you don't feel all alone, like, oh, I'm the only one over here who cares about this. Yeah. Like, no, it's, that's what I've heard from a lot of people from you know smaller projects that kind of go to these bigger summits, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not yeah. the only one who cares about these things. Yeah. There's a lot of people here, and so it's been comforting, I think, in that way. Mm, like there's strength in numbers. Yeah. Returning back to the university, You create deliberately interdisciplinary university courses that are shaped by public health, environmental science, and anthropology. What do you hope to impart to your students through your teaching? Yeah, so as often as I can, I try to link students up with either local projects or other kind of nationwide projects so that if they're doing research, it can be useful to somebody besides just a paper. Um, Students also have the option to write a paper if there's something that they really just want to kind of hash out in their own brains. But I try to give them the option as well to do a more applied project and and to do group projects because I want students to also understand that once you go forth in the world, you're going to have a lot more group projects going forward than you will sitting all by yourself in the library for three days in a row kind of projects. So what do I hope they will take away from it? Being able to work collaboratively especially with community partners and recognizing that you are not going to go in and save anyone. You know, I think a lot of times students come in with this very sincere desire to fix things, to to save the world, to save this space, to save something. Um, I'm going to take what I've got here and I'm going to apply it somewhere and I'm going to fix things. And often communities don't want somebody to come in and just shove everybody aside who's already been working on the topic and fix things. And so getting people to think about how do you assess what's already going on and figure out what you can provide to the broader picture, to this broader uh, machine that's already in operation to help it keep moving along. How do you uplift and support people who are in the community who are already doing that work um, and help them to do that work with greater ease through the resources you can provide? So those are the types of things that I hope students will leave class understanding. Can you tell us about an example project that your students have done? So for the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, one year some students did surveys of people who might be potential interested members and kind of asked them 
what they hoped the organization could provide for them and talking about some of their successes and challenges. NASA has taken that survey information and gone forward with it. Um, right now I have some students working on a project we've been thinking through how to wake up seeds that are over a century old. Is that possible? And so students are out surveying different scientists and botanists and seed professionals and kind of getting a, a general read of what are some different techniques that could be used to, to wake up those seeds when communities inherit these older seeds and kind of drawing up a report that will be understandable on a public level of you know what these different suggestions are. There's some other students that are working with a group that want to start a farmer's co-op among Native peoples in the Great Lakes area. And so they're putting some work into pulling up the information that this group can then use to help try to get that off the ground. Returning to what's going on in America more broadly, how do Native communities in particular resist corporate America's contributions to environmental degradation, and how does this fit inside the larger picture of the Pfeiffer's food sovereignty? Yeah, there's been fights. You know, for example, the Anishinaabe people were fighting against the University of Minnesota and other companies around mapping out the wild rice genome and creating genetically modified wild rice that they were concerned could cross with actual wild rice. And what would that do to wild rice stands? if the pollen from these patented genetically modified varieties gets into the wild rice, what will that do to those wild crops? There's been you know, concerns about heirloom seed, heirloom corn crops being contaminated with pollen from genetically modified corn crops. Some of the biggest resistance and concerns has been around preventing pipelines and mines being constructed that would contaminate the land needed for food. So, you know, especially in Minnesota, there's been a lot of fights around preventing pipelines that will cross over wild rice lake beds. And because those pipelines leak, they just do. I mean, the Keystone Pipeline just leaked. You know, there was a big fight to keep the Dakota Access Pipeline from being built under Lake Oahe because they leak. And so now, now that the pipeline has been forced through, the concern is what does that mean for people's water sources? So there's been fights to keep pipelines out, fights to keep mines from being built that would also contaminate the the waterways that will destroy the wild rice. You know, people are trying to keep pipelines away from their, their farms, their fields, their planting areas. So that's been another way that people have been resisting and trying to protect their food sources. How does climate change, if at all, influence Native American farming practices, food practices? There's concerns about what the shifting climate means. So for communities that are hunting and foraging and fishing, there are places that are, that are warming, that the waters are changing, and those plants and animal species are, are moving out of territories. And so if you have this boundary put around your reservation and this is your territory and this broader boundary is considered your you know, traditional hunting ground, if all the animals move out of that space, um, you no longer are given access to them under treaty rights, and so that's been a concern. When it comes to farming, you know, the southwest is getting drier and drier, and the northeast is getting wetter and wetter, and so that's been 
a concern. You know, people couldn't get their corn planted until like June this year oh, wow. in the Midwest and in the kind of some parts of upstate New York because it was just so wet. You know, when I drove through Iowa, even in July, it was still flooded. The places were still underwater. And so, yeah, that's a that's a concern that, you know, when your growing season is suddenly cut so short and you have a 120-day corn, you know, what does that mean for? Is your corn going to ripen? So there have been concerns. There have been thoughts of, you know, if you have seed varieties that are very much adapted to a particular mm-hmm. space and type of climate, what will that mean when the climate has become so erratic? So people have talked about, like, well, should we trade our seeds north? Should we, you know, get to know our, our neighbors to the south? Or some people have been, you know, Tara Lynn Brandt, who works with Mohawk Seed Keepers in Six Nations, has been, you know, saving seeds each year, depending on which ones do well in drought years and which ones do well in flooding years. And so you have, you know, individual farmers like her who have been working very hard to try to figure out how to adapt their seeds to a rapidly changing climate. So the final question, Mm -hmm. what does decolonization mean to you, particularly in the context of indigenous food movements? So decolonization, that's a word that is just slapped on a lot of things these days. (laughs) Um, And there's that seminal article, you know, Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang talk about how decolonization is not a metaphor. So literally, if you're going to decolonize your food system, where does land rematriation fit back into that? You know, where, what does that mean for farmers of other origins who've been on spaces for a very long time is something for people to think about. But in thinking about, like, decolonizing food systems, you know, people that I've talked to wonder, okay, does that mean, you know, peeling back all these layers and thinking about what are all these, what are all these things that are, are colonized? How do you peel back everything? What, is, what does that mean? And thinking about what is a native plant you know, people have said, okay, anything that arrived after 1492. So there was one fellow who um, developed a native plant policy for the Seneca Nation, Ken Parker. And he you know, created this policy, and all the plants on there were plants that were in that area pre-1492. Now, pre-1492, you know, people were trading and moving things around. You know, corn gradually made its way up from Mesoamerica to everywhere else because people traded it and planted it and it it showed up to new regions. So what does it mean to cut off the ability to bring in new plants at 1492? So the rules change. You're no longer allowed to trade with your neighbors and have it still count as native. And granted, a lot of things have been brought in in a more forcible way. But in that example, you know, old ladies in the community were like, well, we like plantain. Now, that's something we like that for salves, it's a good plant. Um, he's like, that's not a native plant, though. It's literally called English man's footprint, you know, because oh. it popped up everywhere the English went. They're like, yeah, we like this plant. It's a good plant. We're still going to consider it a native plant. He's like, no, it's not a native plant. And they're like, <laughs> well, we like it, <laughs> you know. And so it becomes um, Nick Rio, who is a professor at Dartmouth, and one of his colleagues wrote an interesting article about the way traditional Anishinaabe elders think about invasive species. And what does that term mean? And how do we rethink how we relate to these uninvited, you know, or species that have sort of come here in their own way? Are those things that could be eaten? Are those things that people should develop a relationship with in a different way? So it's not a community you had a relationship with prior because it's a more newly arrived 
community of fish or plants or animals, but how do you develop a different kind of relationship with it? So in thinking about, you know, the pressure of what is decolonizing, what are you allowed to eat if it's, you know, if it's only something that's pre-colonial, I prefer the term indigenizing. So it's sort of like instead of thinking back and thinking about, like, how, how do you peel off all the layers? Where do all those layers go? How far down do you have to get? You know, it's kind of looking backward. People who talk about indigenizing something, how do you say, this is how our community does things here. They're the central tenets that determine what is good and right for this community, and how do you determine that going forward, what you're going to do is going to be within those tenets. And so maybe that includes adapting ingredients that you've gotten from other places that you've developed a relationship with and you like those and you're going to use them. (laughs) Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To follow more of Elizabeth's work, follow at Liz Hoover on Instagram and at Blue Fancy Shawl on Twitter. Her website is GardenWarriorsGoodSeeds.com. The book she co-edited, Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States is in stores today. And look out for her book, From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, in the near future. This episode was produced by myself, Thomas Hagen, Amy Zhang, Lin Nguyen, and Alexa Stanger. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Munno, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to the Native American Cultural Center at Yale, and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration for supporting Elizabeth's visit. We'll see you in two weeks.